You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you today. Great to have the opportunity to be over here and worship with you this morning. Thank you, team, for leading us so well. And what an awesome God we serve, right? If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to that passage that uh, Ali just read for us. And if you're our guest this morning, we're in a series going through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it has been a blessing, and it's been painful as well. Because uh, as we hear the Lord give us his, give his commands to us, we recognize how much we fall short, and it presses us into Jesus Christ. And so we're being blessed, but we're also being challenged. So turn there if you would, and then if I might, while you're uh, turning there, just remind you that next Sunday evening is a special evening for us. It's our annual meeting here at the church. And some important things take place at that meeting every year, of course. And the information is out there available for you. We will be voting on our budget for uh, 2024. We'll also uh, be electing our uh, deacons who will serve for the coming year. And I hope that you will go through and pray for all those who have been nominated. A number of them are part of the worship gathering here in the hub. And so I uh, ask you to be praying for that and that gathering. And then also, as we meet, uh, the elders have uh, been discussing a couple of changes to our constitution and bylaws. Uh, one of those has to do with the membership process here at the church, just clarifying how uh, people become covenant members here at West Park. And with that also, uh, fine-tuning our doctrinal statement a little bit to give greater clarity uh, to the commitment we have to the Word of God and absolute authority of the Scriptures. Uh, and also, uh, giving opportunity for sincere believers in Jesus Christ to do not necessarily dot the I and cross the T at the exact same place uh, to be uh, aligned in community together as well. And so that's an important uh, discussion that will be before us, and that information is available out here at the uh, welcome desk. So if you'll go by, make sure you get that. And then also we are just four weeks away from the offering that Chris spoke about the Jehovah Jireh offering that we always uh, give to the Lord, uh, beginning to give to that offering on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, uh, and then it is open through the end of the year. Thankful, so thankful for your generosity over the years, how God has used that uh, offering on mission, both here on our campus and in this area as well, and I uh, hope that you'll be praying about your part in that great offering as it is going uh, toward the uh, completion, Lord willing, soon of our children's uh, building. We're excited about the progress that you've seen. We're looking forward to seeing, by God's grace, that completed uh, in the months ahead. So I encourage you to be praying about your part in that. So some important things coming up at our annual meeting uh, next Sunday at 4.30 in the afternoon. So I encourage you to be a part of that. But now this morning, let's turn to God's Word, if you would. Turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 5. And we are here returning to uh, what 
can be called the constitution of Christianity. Sermon on the Mount is really uh, foundational to our Christian faith. It's the Lord Jesus uh, as the new Moses giving the law for the new community that he is building. And so this is the constitution of this new community of faith. And over the years, the Sermon on the Mount, many of you know, has been one of the most beloved passages in the New Testament. It's also been one of the most convicting. Uh, I couldn't help but smile at a quote I came across recently from the well-known uh, author of generation ago, uh, philosopher C.S. Lewis. Many of you are familiar uh, with his writings. Well, C.S. Lewis was asked uh, if he cared for the Sermon on the Mount. And here is what he said. As for caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. I think we all understand what he's saying. These, these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, they bless our hearts, don't they? I mean, this, this reason it's one of the most beloved passages. They bless our hearts and fill us with joy but these words of Jesus also buckle our knees. They, these words send us to our knees in brokenness and humility, and they send us to Jesus and his gospel and thanking him that he is the completion of our righteousness because our righteousness alone can never attain to this kind of standard. But these words in his passage that Jesus is sharing with us, and he's sharing with his disciples that day, they are our Lord's commands. Jesus is not sharing the king's suggestions. <laughs> these are the king's commands for his followers. And that's the reason we've entitled this series Life in the kingdom. Because that's really what you have here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You have Jesus defining for us what life in his kingdom is really all about. And in his kingdom, he starts with this first of his great messages by declaring that he has not come to just add to some more of the rabbinical tradition that's gone on for centuries. As a matter of fact, already in this sermon, five times Jesus has said the same thing. Do you remember? He says this, You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, that is, you have heard it taught by the rabbis and others. But I say to you. Now this is the sixth time 
that Jesus says the same thing. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And this sixth time, he sort of summarizes the previous ones in giving what we could call his new commandment. And through the New Testament, this is going to be demonstrated as the king's commandment. It's going to be called the royal commandment. It's going to be referenced as the royal law. It's going to be called the greatest commandment. What is that? It's the commandment of love. The commandment of love. Jesus calls us to a life of love. But here in particular, he calls us, listen, to a love like his. A love like his. And so in verses 43 through 48 today, we're going to listen as the Lord calls us to a life of love. But it's a love like his. Now what is this love like? Let's listen to Jesus as he talks about the principle of a love like his. First of all, let's look at this. The principle of a love like his. As Jesus addresses this principle, he does so by quoting a prevailing concept about love at the current time. People had heard teaching about love. But here's what they had heard. Look, if you would, at verse 43. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, have any of you ever heard the expression, a half-truth is a whole lie? You ever heard that? A half-truth is a whole lie. Well, that's exactly what you have here. You have a half-truth, but it's a half-truth that makes it a whole lie. The half-truth being taught by the rabbis in that day was this. Love your neighbor. That was true. <laughs> but what had been added to that undermined everything. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Nowhere had God ever said that. He had said, love your neighbor. But nowhere had he said, hate your enemy. As a matter of fact, Jesus had said just the opposite. In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 and 34, this is Old Testament. Here's what God said through Moses to his covenant people in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19, verse 33, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. Now listen. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord 
your God. Over the generations since God gave that commandment, here is what religion had done. Religion had kept the part that was acceptable. Love your neighbor, but the part that was uncomfortable had been set aside. The Lord said, you are to love the sojourner, the stranger, as you would a native Israelite. You are to love him as you love yourself. See, over the generations, what had happened, the, the rabbis had redefined neighbor. Love your neighbor. Well, who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is your fellow Israelite. You can reject all others as long as you love your neighbors. Over the centuries, the Jewish people had become so profound at this that in the first century, one Roman writer referred to the Jewish people as the haters of the human race. Haters of the human race. The attitude in Jesus' day among his people, and it was taught religiously. It was taught. Here is what was taught. Israel for the Israelites. Israel for the Israelites. Foreigners not welcome. That was taught as the religion of the day. And into that kind of belief system and into that kind of atmosphere for personal relationships, Jesus makes this startling statement. I say to you, love your enemies. Not just love your neighbor who's like you, not just love the one who is passing through. But I say to you, love your enemies. And Jesus here is taking a sledgehammer of love and he is deconstructing the religion of that day. He's taking a sledgehammer of God's divine love and truth and he is tearing down the religion of that day in order that he might build his new community on the truth of the love of God. <laughs> love had never been defined like this before. Jesus is calling his disciples to a love without boundaries, a love without limit. A love without exception clauses. You can read all the fine print, and it still says, love your enemies. Now, as if Jesus had not startled his people enough by saying that, love your enemies, he startled them by that principle, but then Jesus went on to share with them, what does this love look like? You know, it's one thing to say, 
love your enemies, oh, okay. But what does that look like? Important to understand, what Jesus is going to say is not what it feels like. What it looks like. He's going to help us understand that love, in reality, is not first an emotion. It is an, an action that is willed in submission to the Lord and fueled by His grace. So notice what this practice of this love. We have the principle, you shall love your enemies, but what does this look like? Well, here's the practice. He shares with us, verse 44, love is a verb. (laughs) It's a verb. Verse 44, notice what Jesus said, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, love, we recognize love does involve emotion. It may involve emotion. But listen carefully. The kind of love that the Lord is describing here always involves action. Whether it involves emotion or not, it always involves action. This is a verb. Love here is something we do. It's not just something we think about. It's something that we do. And it's something that we do not just for our friends, not just for our loved ones, but we're also to do this for our enemies. Now, how do we practice love for our enemies? I mean, how do, how do we do this? Well, Jesus' answer is, it's a threefold answer. You, you hear him here in the Sermon on the Mount, and then Luke also tells us that Jesus evidently often shared this theme through his teaching because Luke tells us a little bit more about how Jesus defined love for your enemies. What does loving your enemies include? Notice, first of all, loving our enemies is part of our worship. Loving our enemies is part of our worship. Where do you see that? Verse 4. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When it says pray here, it doesn't say pray to your enemies. Pray for your enemies. And when you are praying, you are talking to God. You are worshiping. And so part of our worship as followers of Jesus is to be to pray for our enemies. It's part of our regular worship pattern. There was a 4th century Christian leader. His name was John Chrysostom. He's called that. He's actually John of Antioch, but he was called Chrysostom, which means the golden mouth, because he was such an incredible speaker. He became known as John Chrysostom. But here's what he said. Prayer for enemies is the highest form of self-control. 
when you feel like laying hands on somebody and not in a New Testament sense. When you feel like laying hands on someone, but rather you pray for them instead, that is the highest form of self-control. But this is our Lord's command, and it is, it is a command. As a matter of fact, it's His supreme demand of us. Many of you are familiar with the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, a leader among the Free Church, Lutheran Church of Germany prior to World War II. Eventually, he was put to death on the direct command of Adolf Hitler. But in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, and if you've never read that book, I encourage you to. It's based primarily on the Sermon on the Mount. He wrote it in the 1930s. And Bonhoeffer said this about Jesus' statement. This is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy. We go to our enemy. We stand by his side and plead for him to God. Love is intercessory prayer for your enemy as an act of worship to God. It's not just to be private prayer, though. Because Jesus goes on to say, this prayer for your enemy that may be private must be acted on personally in public. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. This is where I said Luke gives us additional information to what Jesus said about loving your enemies. He said to pray for them. But then he also said, Luke chapter 6, verse 27, But I say to you who, are, who hear, love your enemies, do good to them who hate you. Bless them who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Here Jesus says again, pray for your enemies. But then he says, don't just pray. You are to go beyond that. And loving our enemies means not just in worship, but loving our enemies with our words. To bless someone means to speak kindly to them. It means to speak respectfully. It means to treat with dignity. It means to the idea of extending graciousness to them. The Lord does not allow us to have neutralities toward our enemies. We pray for them and then we ignore them. The Lord doesn't allow that. He said, I want you to love them in worship and prayer, but then I want you to love them with your words. With words of encouragement and help. And then, loving our enemies is not only 
in worship, through prayer, in words, through our encouragement, but also loving our enemies with works. Do good to them. This is not neutrality. He is not saying, just don't do them any harm. He is saying, no, the kind of love I'm calling you to is to actively work on behalf of those who may be your enemies, to do good to them. Now let me stop here for a moment. I know, I know, how easy it is to feel this and to also say this, because I have felt it, <laughs> maybe I've said it, but I know I've heard other people many times say it. It'll be something like this. Well, listen, I'm not going to be a hypocrite if I don't really feel love in my heart toward that person, I'm not going to act as if I do. That would be hypocrisy, and the Lord doesn't want me to be a hypocrite. And so until I really feel it, I'm not going to do it because that would be hypocrisy. My friend, the reality is this. Listen carefully. It's the opposite. You will never feel it until you do it. You will never feel the amazing grace of God's love until rising above your natural feelings, you act in obedience to the Lord in doing good, speaking kindly. Again, I love what C.S. Lewis says here about this in his book, Mere Christianity. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets when you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. I like to call this holy hypocrisy. <laughs> you don't feel it. You don't feel it at all. But your Lord has commanded it. But the reality is, when you do this action, then you will feel the emotion which comes from the joy of the Holy Spirit in your heart as you align yourself with the heart of God and obey. The question is, well, will this change my enemy? can't say, but I'll tell you one thing, it will change you. may not change your enemy, but it will change you. And you see, that's what Jesus is driving toward here 
the principle of loving your enemy must become the practice of loving your enemy so that the purpose of God in loving your enemy can be experienced and expressed in your life. See, there's two great purposes here, Jesus said, that are accomplished in us when we love our enemies. Two great purposes that are accomplished. What are they? Number one, love, Jesus says, makes us less like the world. Makes us less like the world. Look at verse 46. Jesus says in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Verse 47, If you love only and greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now what's Jesus doing here? What was being taught by the rabbis? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Of all people, who were the arch enemies of the Jewish people? According to current thinking. The tax collectors and the Gentiles, the pagans. The tax collectors here refers to traitors, Jewish people who had gone to work for the Roman government and they were collecting taxes of their own people for the Roman government, but they were actually ex committing extortion. They were getting more than their due. They were getting rich off of this. They are hated because they are the traitors, the extortioners. And Jesus said, don't you know, Swindlers are even nice to swindlers. So if you're only nice to people that are nice to you, well, swindlers do the same. Then there's the Gentiles. This is the pagans, the people who worship all the false gods, whose worship is ungodly and reprobate and immoral. He says, even the Gentiles, the people you call pagans, they're nice to each other. What virtue is there if you're just nice to people who are nice to you, or even if you're neutral toward people who are not nice to you? Even the swindlers and the pagans do that. That's not the kind of righteousness that Jesus is talking about. Remember, he said, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about earning your salvation, but what he is saying here, something needs to be so amazing in your life that you become a person who is transformed 
the righteousness of my people, Jesus said, the way they're going to be known, the way my community is going to be defined in this world is not by just being nice to each other. But my community is going to be a community of my sheep who are even kind and loving to the wolves who seek to devour them. That's what Jesus is saying here. You see, when we practice this kind of love Jesus is calling us to, it makes us less like the world, but it does something far, far better and more amazing than that, friends. This kind of love makes us more like our Father. This kind of love makes us more like our Father. Listen to Jesus, verse 45. He says, I want you to love your enemies. Pray for them. Luke says he also included do good to them, bless them, so that, verse 45, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Again, he's not saying you do this in order to make God your Father. He's already told his disciples who believe in him, God is your Father. But his desire is that his people become more and more on earth like their heavenly Father who is in heaven. And how does the heavenly Father treat people? He sends his blessing. Verse 45 says, He calls the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Last week, Susan and I were up in Grand Rapids, Michigan and involved in a Bible conference, a church there. And we took a day or two to drive up, stayed with a, our nephew, his wife and family in northern Indiana. But as we drove through Indiana on our way to Grand Rapids, the, they were, the farmers were just starting to take the corn harvest, take the corn off. And you drive and you'd see this, the corn on both sides of the road. Amazing in, in its height and its density. But, but I remarked to Jesus, uh, to Susan about what Jesus said here, and I knew this passage was coming up. Isn't this interesting? There may be a man on this side of the road he loves God, he serves the Lord, he's faithful, and look what a crop he has. And just on the other side of the road is a man, a farmer, who has no care for God whatsoever, lives only for self, and is nothing but a blight to the community. But look at his crops. What is this? This is God's common grace. He causes his sunshine, his rain to come down 
upon his kids, the just and those who are not his. This is common grace. When we cause our love to shine on those who are our enemies, when we cause our words to be like rain of blessing on people who are our enemies, when we go to work to do good to those who are not good and maybe hate us, then we are beginning to reflect the character of our Heavenly Father. You see, when we respond by God's grace to this command to love our enemies and to do it in practical ways, we pray for them. We speak kindly to them. We act on their behalf we are becoming more and more conformed as the image bearers of our Heavenly Father. More and more, we're becoming conformed to the image of Jesus because that's exactly what Jesus did. Our Lord Jesus prayed from the cross for those who were nailing Him to it. Our Lord Jesus spoke blessings toward the people who were slapping His mouth. Our Lord Jesus bore the burden of the cross. And it was the burden that belonged to others. He did good. He went around doing good, we're told. Healing all who were oppressed of the enemy. That's our Lord Jesus. That's what we are called to do. We experience our Heavenly Father's character as we do these things. Not if we just think about them, talk about them, have Bible studies about love, but when we actually go out and do this in Jesus' name to our enemies, verse 28, Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What does he mean here? Not that we're going to be as perfect as God. There's only one perfect person in all the universe God Himself. But the word perfect here that Matthew uses to capture the statement of Jesus is a word which means completeness. Total completeness binds everything together. It's, a, it's the same word. It's a, it's a form of the same word Jesus used on the cross when He said, It is finished. So he's saying, you must therefore be completed in your heart and your character as your heavenly Father. What is this? This is, he's talking in the context of love. What's he talking about? The context is love. 
we are truly completed in the image of God. We are being molded into the image of God as we love, pray, do good, speak kindly to our enemies. A work's being done in us. And we are expressing his witness. As we love our enemies, we express his witness. There's no greater witness than love. My friend, let me tell you something. Love is a universal language. And the greatest witness of all is love. Great Bible teacher from the early 20th century. His name was J. Oswald Sanders. He said this in his book, Spiritual Leadership. And I recommend that book to you as well. Spiritual Leadership by J. Oswald Sanders. Quote, the master expects from his disciples such conduct as can be explained only in the terms of the supernatural. God, our Master, the Lord Jesus, expects us to conduct ourselves in ways that can only be explained by the supernatural. How is that possible? Well, what is supernatural? The love of God. What are we told by Paul? That yes, we are justified by faith. We are declared righteous. But that's not just a legal transaction. Something happens to us. It's not just justification. Praise God for that. Not guilty forever. But when we trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. We are given a new nature. And the Bible says the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is something we can do through God who will give us the strength. The grace is in our hearts. A person who cannot do this is a graceless person. I don't care how long they've been a church member. A person who does not love does not know God. And that doesn't mean love for our friends, love for those like us, but love for all. Kindness of God has given us. And we're called to a love like His. And it's supernatural. But you know what? Our God's supernatural, right? Our God's supernatural. We were enemies of God. And His love conquered our hearts. Listen. We weren't looking for God. We were running from God. We weren't neutral. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were not just tainted with original sin. We were delighting in it. 
traitors and rebels against God without hope, without God in this world, but God for Christ's sake ran us down by His irresistible grace, called us to Himself, showed us our sin, and showed us a sufficient Savior, Christ Jesus and enabled us to lay hold of Christ by faith. That's how we became believers in Jesus. We were enemies, and now we are friends, and we're part of the family. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Who can understand? Behold, what manner of love has been lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. Listen, my friend. God's love has conquered our hearts. Listen. Are we willing through His love to conquer the hearts of our enemies? Are we willing to let God use us through His love to conquer the hearts of our enemy? You know, this week, I'm sure you have, I've been reflecting on the terrible events in Israel. How awful, how horrible. Bloodshed, the 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 demonic hatred that's been displayed. And it caused me on Friday, as I was thinking about this and had yard work, work to do, I put my headphones on and while I was raking and blowing leaves, here's what I did. I lis- I listened to the book of the Revelation twice. And I read about the terrible, terrible things that we're told happens before the coming of the Lord in great glory with this holy angel. And then later that day, as I was thinking about what I'd read in the book of the Revelation, I came across this quote in a commentary by John Stott. And he is referencing, again, Bonhoeffer, who wrote The Cost of Discipleship in the 1930s, before the rise of the Nazi power and the Second World War. But in that book, listen carefully, Bonhoeffer quotes a man by the name of A.E.C. Vilmar, who wrote in 1880. And I want you to listen. I read the book of the Revelation, and then I read this quote. I'd never seen it before. Listen carefully. This commandment that we should love our enemies 
and forgo revenge will grow even more urgent in the holy struggle which lies before us. The Christians will be hounded from place to place, subjected to physical assault, maltreatment, and death of every kind. We are approaching an age of widespread persecution. Soon the time will come when we shall pray. It will be a prayer of earnest love for these very sons of perdition who stand around and gaze at us with eyes aflame with hatred, who have perhaps already raised their hands to kill us. Yes, the church, which is really waiting for the Lord and which discerns the signs of the times of decision, must fling itself with its utmost power and with full armor of its holy life into this prayer of love. The command of our coming King. Listen, is He coming, church? Is He coming? Amen. He's coming. Last promise of the Bible. Behold, I come quickly. Last prayer of the Bible. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But while we are waiting our coming King, there may be incredible outpouring of evil such as we've never known. We must prepare ourselves as His church to even pray with love and with acts of kindness to love our enemies so that when our King comes, He finds us doing what He said to do in the Sermon on the Mount. There is no rescue from this command. No matter how evil it gets, this is the royal command. The king coming says, will you be praying and loving your enemy? Now I close. I love to close. I do it several times every sermon, but I'm closing. I feel really led to make what I call here, listen, a home front application. A home front application. This year, well-known rock singer, known by all the baby boomers here, and some after, Tina Turner, passed away. Her last big mega hit was, What's love got to do with it? What's love got to do? What's, what's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do with it on the home front? Listen carefully. What if 
your husband is your enemy? What if your wife has become your enemy? What if family members have become your enemy? What's love got to do with it? Well, here's the question. If your husband has become your enemy, your wife has become your enemy, family members have become your enemy, here's the question. Will you pray for them? Will you choose to bless them? Will you, in Jesus' name, do good to them? Love is a verb. This is a present tense imperative. It means it is an unending command to love your enemies, even those of your own household. Will you choose to love? Will you choose to obey Jesus? You say, Sam, what will happen? No one knows. But I think I know what will happen to you. You'll know a freedom from bitterness. You'll know a holy protection from the enemy's onslaught. You'll know a peace that's greater than the pain you're involved in. You will know the smile of your Heavenly Father and the Lord your Savior. What will be that product in your life? What's the product of love? Number one, fulfillment. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. What does that all flow out of? Love. A fulfilled life is a loving life. What's the product of love? Fulfillment. Empowerment. Don't you want to be empowered? Isn't that the word of the age? Here's empowerment. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that's empowerment. Freedom. Don't we all want empowerment and fulfillment and freedom? What is freedom? Is it freedom to do your own thing? Is that freedom? Here's freedom. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except love for one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love is an unending commandment. And listen, it's an unpayable debt. That's what this means. The debt you will never pay off is the responsibility to love. He who loves has fulfilled the law. Now, friends, this is a love like his. I want to tell you something. It's not a love like mine. And it's not a love like yours. It's out of this world, but it's in this world. It comes from God. And it's in our hearts. 
but we walk it out in our church and in our homes and we walk it out in our schools and in our workplaces and we walk it out among the people who walk against us, work against us, plan against us. Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome it with good. And aren't you grateful that Jesus loves like this? Lord, we pray to you now and ask that you will take this word. Lord, anything that I have said that is not of your spirit, remove it. Let it take no root. But Lord, what is your word that you have sent forth? Let it accomplish your purpose and break down barriers. Break up fallow ground. Plant the seed of your love, Christ, in our hearts so that we bear fruit to the glory of God and we know the joy, the fulfillment. We know the empowerment. We know the freedom that comes from loving our enemies with a love like yours, Lord Jesus. Amen. As we close in song, we can pray with you. Please let us know. After the service is over, any way that we can help you, please let us know. Team.